Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel, and I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We are very happy to have on the American Shoreline Podcast today, Shannon Kaniff from the Environmental Defense Fund in Washington, D.C. Shannon is the Director of Coastal Resiliency for that fantastic organization. Uh, Shannon, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thanks for uh, having me. Shannon, we really look forward to uh, bringing you on one of the uh, preeminent thought leaders in coastal resilience in the United States of America. It's a treat to have her on the show. But first, let's uh, pay the light bill, Peter, with a quick word from our sponsors. Well, first of all, we want to thank our good friend in Pensacola, Florida, Frederic Barisette and her team at Dune Doctors, the folks who are dedicated, and you'll love this, Shannon, to natural dune restoration as a flood control response measure. So if you're on the Gulf Coast and, and you want to use native dune plants and dune systems for uh, to enhance your property and protect it, give Frederic a call and her team at Dune Doctors. Find them at dunedoctors.com. And let's uh, hear briefly from our good friends at Coastal Engineering Consultants. These guys are Definitely one of the best coastal engineering firms on the Gulf Coast, uh, headed up by Michael Poff, uh, truly great uh, coastal engineer. Uh, they pride themselves on really getting into the community, learning what the, the needs are, learning what people, people want. Uh, they do an outstanding job and they own perhaps the best web address of any coastal engineering firm in the United States of America. You can find them at coastalengineering.com. Way to go, Michael Poff. And the other great sponsor on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today, LJA Engineering with 28 offices in the Gulf of Mexico. The Coastal Division headed up by our good friend Bill Worsham. Find them. Great guys. You can get to them at LJA.com. All right, Shannon. Well, uh, I said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, It's a real treat to have you on the show. Uh, what you do with EDF is so important and uh, really looking to the future uh, years ahead of where we are today and how we will manage our shorelines, manage our flood risks. Uh, but don't let me say it. Why don't you tell our audience briefly what you do for the Environmental Defense Fund? <laughs> briefly is always the hard part. I, I have one of the more rewarding jobs, I think. So what I do is try to help communities think about how they can incorporate natural and nature-based features into their strategies to reduce their flood risks. And that's because there are many strategies that people are, you know, uh, aware of, you know, like seawalls and levees, but there are a whole host of other things that can be done to reduce flood risks. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned dunes at the beginning, uh, putting it, you know, good, well-vegetated dunes is a great strategy for coastal communities where dunes historically have existed. Uh, wetlands and, and uh, along our riparian areas or even upstream well above, uh, so so that water doesn't actually flow quickly, too quickly into streams and then into rivers causing flooding. So there's a whole bunch of strategies that can be done and they all work together. And that's what I'm trying to advocate for. And it's amazing to me that, well, I don't say say amazing, but maybe a lot of our uh, uh, audience uh, wouldn't know that EDF has a 
a position dedicated to this particular approach to risk management. Uh, why is this issue of natural infrastructure a focus for the Environmental Defense Fund? Well, uh, you know, I, I work in the ecosystems program, and uh, EDF has also been greatly involved in climate change issues. And I think that, you know, one way to think about it is climate change is already happening, no matter how successful we are in bending down uh, the curve, so to speak, on greenhouse gas emissions. We're seeing climate change impacts, changes in precipitation amounts, uh, the intensity of rain events, uh, you know, long seasons like the Midwest has experienced uh, in terms of excessive moisture. So it's, it's a problem of the future, but it's a problem now. And I have a background in risk management, I guess you could say. And I think that um, we've been challenged as a nation with our, our flood control strategies. And now that challenge is on steroids. And so we really need to do something. And my fear is that we have, uh, we take a 19th century approach of concrete uh, and river modification and um, don't use the lessons of the 21st century to um, more strategically and comprehensively address flood risk. And so EDF sees those strategies as uh, very compatible with environmental goals, um, both because we don't want to see our shorelines walled off everywhere um, and because we see that natural infrastructure provides a real opportunity to take the peaks off of uh, floods and reduce the risks, the additional risks that climate change is having. I think that's so important, Shannon. And uh, one of the things that while we're, while we're talking here about this kind of 50,000 foot view of uh, EDF and your actual position within it, uh, I want to just take a minute and discuss the important, you were talking about kind of this importance of the interconnectedness of upland development and watersheds and how they all interplay together, we might have a, a site of problematic flooding and it would be easy to say, hey, listen, that's an isolated incident. But the more you learn about uh, the interconnectedness of certainly the coastal space, you realize that uh, it's not just one little zone where the problem is. You have to look at the whole space. And I think it's uh, awesome that in your position you get to do that. And I'd want to kind of hand it back to you and uh, allow you to expound on this theory. This is obviously central to what we're trying to do on this podcast and on this podcast network. So, uh, tell us a little bit more, a little bit more about the importance of the interconnectedness working together all within EDF, of course, but also uh, outside of EDF in the in the broader world of the country. Right. Well, well, there's so many things I could say there. I mean, first of all. We, I'm a geographer by training, so I think about things in systems and the integration of physical, biological, social, and economic systems. So maybe my, you know, my training makes me sort of inherently think that way. Um, so you're absolutely right. We have a lot of communities that have a flooding problem, and they, you know, they they do a band-aid solution rather than, okay, let's just fix and move the water off of this area more quickly. But that fix can create a problem downstream by making more water move faster, which increases erosion, and then frankly, can move downstream to flood another community. 
So we really need to look at um, our flooding, both in terms of the geographic system that we live in and recognize that uh, one community success in shunting water away can be a failure for another community because they're getting flooded. But uh, there's also the economic consequences. Um, you know, flooding isn't good for the nation. I was just reading an article yesterday, and I wish I could tell you the author of it, uh, but I have a horrible memory. But they had done an analysis and said uh, that by 2050, um, given the current patterns of hurricanes and extreme weather, and not just flooding, but other you know fires and everything, the natural disasters, we could have uh, our GDP would be, I think, about three percent, a little more than three percent um, lower, uh, and it he acquired, equated it to a trillion dollar loss in GDP by 2050. So uh, we can't afford that as a nation. Uh, you know, so that's what I mean. We have to think about these things economically. And, um, you know, there are groups, um, IBHS is one of them. I hope I did that an acronym, right? Uh, Institute for Building Sciences. I missed some part of it. Uh, they, you know, and a whole bunch of other folks did an analysis on, um, you know, the implications, the financial implications of hazard mitigation showing how much more cost effective it is to mitigate flood risks ahead of time rather than uh, respond to a disaster. And so one of their studies, for example, showed that, you know, if you just mitigated flood risks by implementing superior building codes along the Gulf and Atlantic coasts, it has a return of, you know, a benefit cost ratio of five to one. So there's some really significant things that we can do if we start to think about our approach to flooding and how it relates to the nation and our own individual economics, our community economics. You know, I think that's the, Shannon, that's the great case for smart thinking, smart growth, uh, uh, the philosophy of, of better planning and, and, and really taking a look at what's happening at the local community in terms of, of uh, what they're allowing to be built, how they're handling the potential risks of more dense development. And here, here's, and I think in other words, it's, it's fairly accepted that what you're saying is true. It is clearly cost-effective to do this, to think ahead, to mitigate risk in advance. Uh, it's clearly advantageous to look at uh, natural infrastructure as a component of that strategy rather than, the, the as you said, the 19th century fortification uh, notion. Um, as a professional in this in this arena for more than five years, seven years, ten years in your career, looking back, you've been talking about and working on this subject area for quite a long time. What's what what's keeping us from being better at this? What's the status of the professional discussion? Um, are we are we getting to this notion, which I think is widely shared and understood by the professionals who really think about it? Are we in a? Are we getting better at executing this notion? I think um, I want to say yes. I think there's growing understanding, but we're not there yet. And what's what do you think's holding it back a little bit? Right. Well, there's several things. Um, one thing is some of the perverse incentives that we have created over time. So we have uh, a national flood insurance program 
that, you know, its aim is to uh, make people financially um, better off should they suffer a, a flood. But it, what also does is it sort of encourages people or says, yeah, you can live in a floodplain, you know, here, here, pay insurance. So, um, so, you know, like people don't actually all know that they live in floodplains. In fact, in the nation, it's estimated about 41 people, million, 41 million people live in U.S. floodplains, either on the coasts or at rivers. So less than half of them have flood insurance. Um, so th that's a problem. But the bigger problem, I think, is that we have a, a disconnect between local and state uh, planning and actions that um, aggravate flooding. So, for example, you know, urban sprawl um, still occurs, and uh, every time you you know build more buildings and just sprawl out over the landscape, you are reducing its natural ability to act as a sponge to hold water. Uh, so we need to think about what are the costs of allowing that kind of sprawl and providing the support systems to fight the floods uh, and do emergency response when there is a flood. So that's, again, an example of why we need to really have systems thinking and we have to hold people responsible to implement the very as various aspects of those systems. For example, some states will um, not allow localities to implement hazard-informed building codes above and beyond what the state has established as a building code. So, so that means then that a, you know, an area that is flood-prone doesn't have the ability, you know, more flood-prone than the average for the state, doesn't have the ability to implement better building codes, possibly even you know, uh, not be able to implement zoning that would be relevant to um, flooding. So that's what I mean. There has to be a lot of responsibility so that it's, it's, it's up to, you know, planners, it's up to engineers, it's up to emergency responders, it's up to, frankly, natural resource uh, and parks people all to get together and start to talk about creating hazard informed plans where, uh, for example, the parks people can say, you know, we want that space open, we'll actually manage it because it's good habitat for, you know, X or it's good recreational area, and it would be a good thing, it's low lying, so we don't wanna put dense development there. Um, so we really need to al align these kinds of plans. There's, there's so many fixes, we actually know what they are. It's a question of will, and not doing what's socially expedient or financially expedient, but what's expedient and financially sound in the long run. Do you, do you just wake up and pull your hair out some mornings? Because that sounds incredibly difficult, the number of factors that are involved in being good at this? Well, it does make me wake up and want to do this at the local level so that I can influence just one area. Yeah. You know, yesterday uh, it was, uh, I was listening to the newscast here in Texas uh, about a decision made by the Houston City Council this week. Uh, it was a proposal for a 400 plus acre development upstream of the uh, Atticus Reservoir, which just flooded in Harvey, tremendous losses of property. And uh, it was an open area, it was a low-lying area, and it was an area that was currently in some sort of recreational status. And uh, the city council voted 
uh, to approve the municipal utility district with basically authorized the development to move forward. It was interesting to listen to the interview and it calls out that I think one of the factors you're highlighting here, there's the economic incentives problem. And then there's in the political arena, the fact that uh, the city council members that they interviewed for the story and said, why are you putting this much new development upstream of areas that are already highly flooded? We have to have stormwater retention upstream. What the hell are you doing? And the, 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 the city council member said, you know what? It's a matter of private property. And I thought, boy, that is some shallow thinking. Um, as if the government is not in a position to manage this risk, that the primary uh, factor in the decision needs to be the, uh, the autonomy of private property owners without regard to the downstream property owners who have property rights and interests that are going to be negatively affected. I mean, the, the fact that the guy wasn't even balancing that trade-off struck me Number one. And number two, they were celebrating the fact that there were actually five negative votes on the Houston City Council for that project. And typically these things go through unanimously. And I thought, man, the political problem, Shannon, in addition to the economic incentives, the connection between those two is just so difficult to crack. Well, I would take I would take um, some some. uh, not pleasure isn't the right word, but I would. I'm happy to hear that there were negative vote, votes because that does demonstrate considerable progress, and that there have been lessons learned. Uh, so it demonstrates that there's a need for continuing to educate and start to frame these issues in ways that folks that are private property oriented. If that's their main reason, then they need to understand exactly the point you were making. That well. The upstream guy is affecting the value and the use of someone's property downstream. And and Shannon, we we have actually, you know, you you were mentioning how, uh, you know, there are certain elements here where we are just we're a little slow to adapt, but there's there's hope, there is movement, and one area where we have seen movement is in a, a shift to to natural infrastructure. Um, you know, we talk about it here with the uh, coast, the Texas Coastal Protection Plan that the Army Corps of Engineers is working on. A huge chunk of that money is going to dunes, natural protection, not concrete. Uh, so that represents a change. When we were at ASBPA last year, we did our roundtable podcast. Uh, it was pretty much unanimous around the table that uh, for that the word managed retreat had entered the lexicon. That means something, even if it's if even if there are only a handful of projects around the country right now, that's going to go up. And uh, it also seems like communities and this Houston example is an interesting one because obviously they just got walloped, uh, and they they always get walloped. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harvey of course walloped them, but yep. a regular storm they they've got flooding problems. But you know, shifting this over to the Louisiana shoreline where you've got communities out there on land that is absolutely disappearing before their eyes and they stand defiant. Uh, it's hard to move them yet. It's, it's also, this is, this discussion is becoming a part of life on the American shoreline, especially in new Orleans. And I would like to ask you if as, as these, as the discussion of sea level rise, climate change, adapting to the, uh, to the changes becomes more and more a part of the normal local political lexicon, 
are we becoming more adaptive in our ability to kind of look forward and create policies that mitigate the risks? I think, yes, we are. And I think that that such is a necessity. And human beings are, in fact, very adaptable creatures. I would argue um, a little bit with your characterization of Louisiana. Um, they recognize, the state recognizes it's going to lose an awful lot of land and it has its state master plan to uh, rebuild and reconnect the river uh, to help you know, rebuild the wetlands and uh, buffer some areas, but they recognize they're not going to be able to protect everything and that they are going to lose a significant portion of their coastal areas. And we have coastal communities there um, who have been working um, uh, under the LA Safe program uh, or initiative, you know, looking at how to build resilience and you know where retreat may make sense and what do you need to be to make other areas attractive. Uh, you know, to keep money locally, um, you know, so, so communities are grappling with the very real existential issues. And that's exciting. And that's important. Um, and we need to, you know, help communities have very difficult conversations about their individual and collective futures. Let's okay, and let's talk about. I think the the what is to me the interface between this. Uh, you know, one of the fault lines in this issue when we're talking about typical engineering solutions. I like that you mentioned on river flows. You know, the localized solution moving the water quicker downstream, bigger culverts, better drainage. All of that passes the problem downstream. We're certainly starting to see that discussion on the Mississippi River system right now uh, because of the flood on the Arkansas River, the Ohio, all of the tributaries in the upper Midwest, all of that water. We're at flood stage and have been for months now. Uh, so there is this tendency to go toward the structural. People want it, you know, that's the first thing you think of. Well, damn it, let's just build a bigger wall. That is such an appealing, you know, Boom. This is what we want to do. Concrete. We're going to build a damn wall. We're going to get this water out of here. Uh, the alternative to that is this breathing living system idea that EDF really focuses on. The the ability of the river to have room to move um, using natural infrastructure. Um, when you're looking at projects and, and around the country and you're watching uh, us stack up billions of dollars in in supplemental disaster funding, are you comfortable that the natural infrastructure approach is filtering its way into the project level at this point? How are, how are we doing in our, in our disaster supplemental billions of dollars that we just, uh, Congress just put in the hands of the Corps of Engineers and local communities around the country? The answer to that is very place-based. Um, some communities and states are looking more aggressively at natural infrastructure than others. Um, it has to do just with, you know, personalities and how comfortable people are. Um, and frankly, it also depends on the unique conditions of every watershed and every state, you know, what the options are going to be. Um, you know, I was thinking about your comment about the, the Mississippi river. So, I was involved in the Mississippi flooding in 1993, and a White, a White House uh, established 
task force that worked and was called the Galloway Report we came out with. And in that report, you know, we recommended making room for the river, setback levees, uh, and a more unified system um, for the levees themselves. Uh, and we also talked about floodplain management and ways to pay farmers uh, so that land could be flooded, but it would be productive use you know, for the farmers at other times. So these ideas are not entirely new. They're getting traction now, though. Um, and that's what's exciting. And I think you'll find, you know, where there is somebody locally who is a leader, um, you know, and sees that natural infrastructure not only helps with a flood problem, but also helps with other local issues like recreational space or water quality or even endangered species habitat. Um, it has multiple benefits that can add up to something that makes this area a tremendous community asset or this approach of using natural infrastructure, um, you know, creates community assets. Well, let's, let's highlight some of those folks that uh, you had mentioned, uh, the ASBPA, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association comes out with its best restored, uh, shorelines list, uh, every year. The 2019 announcement is out. Uh, some of those, I think, fit the description you've made. Who, who comes to mind when you think of the folks who, are, who understand it, are executing it, and are getting it right? Wow. Well, let me do a quick sort of correction on that. So ASBPA has put out annually award, rewards for best restored beaches, which have historically been sandy, you know, high energy beaches. And there's, oh my gosh, every year there's some fantastic projects and places that you might not expect. I mean, Galveston, for example, um, because it's Texas, you know, and what you were just raising that issue, example earlier, you know, they've gotten awards. Um, and I think, but what I wanted to say is that we have a new award that's called the Best Restored Shores. And we just implemented it, announced it this spring. Um, and the idea there is to give more recognition and traction for alternative approaches and other types of shorelines, uh, you know, so that the wetland restoration projects, uh, the, the living shorelines approaches, for example, putting in oyster reefs, uh, repairing um, mangroves and uh, coral reefs, for example, would all be eligible. And those are kinds of projects that are going on um, in areas around the world and in the United States. Um, who are the leaders? Oh my gosh. Um, the, uh, I can think of several on riparian areas, but you know, the, the Northwestern states uh, in particular have been working with TNC and other organizations uh, looking at adaptation and ways to uh, find multiple benefits from, uh, from river restoration and floodplain management and flood reduction. Uh, Vermont, uh, where I live now, is uh, actually doing a heck of a job uh, after Hurricane Irene hit several years ago and they, they saw the consequences of wetland loss and where wetlands had preserved, how it protected towns. And you see a very active effort here to uh, make room for the river and use natural infrastructure. 
Well, Shannon, uh, a couple things really quickly. Uh, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association comes out with these awards every year. We got the new one, the Shore, Best Re- uh, Restored Shores. You are a board member on that organization. So when you say we, uh, it is totally appropriate. Uh, and I just want to highlight that uh, the expansion of this new award uh, speaks to exactly the the idea of the broader interconnectedness of the coastal space uh, that we were talking about earlier and just highlight the fact that when you are uh, looking for a wild, healthy environmental system, uh, obviously wild is in quotes because uh, we're, we're, we are, we've modified everything. There's no such thing as, as purely wild anymore. Maybe if you're in Yellowstone or something, but uh, <laughs> when you're on the American shoreline, uh, you are dealing with the, the hand that we have been dealt is that the place has been modified for a couple hundred years now, certainly a hundred years. And uh, our ability to engineer and manage and f- strike the balance between uh, putting our fingerprints on nature and also letting nature take its course is kind of the new, the new uh, way to do it. It's the new technique. And uh, you, in your position with EDF, uh, look look to create policies and thought leadership going forward. And I'm just curious to know where, what, what's the trajectory looking like? Uh, where do you see the state of the art in 10 years, 20 years? Are we, uh, you know, obviously I don't, I don't imagine we're going to stop here with, you know, uh, we've got the beach side, we've got the bay side. Now we've got the, it seems as though, uh, obviously, there's this risk mitigation component around developed areas, but there's also this broader area of the economic, the valuing of the economic health of these ecosystems. What's the what's the future look like from your seat? Oh, boy, I, you gave me about 20 different ideas, and now they're all flying out of my head in a way. But I think the future, um, we uh, in communities and as a nation are more comfortable with living with water that we figured out workarounds um, so that we cope better when there is a flood or that we even embrace water um, entering into our communities. Uh, And we alter some of the the geography, some of our own landscapes, uh, the way we uh, drive, the way we build. Um, I see a, you know, I do see retreat happening. I see that we may have to come to grips with some questions like, is it really appropriate to build in some areas? And if we do build, is it appropriate to build to these really high standards? Um, this is this is antithetical. I mean, I'm going to put something really controversial out there. You know, do we continue to build structures that are intended to withstand big events? Or do we do more of a pop-up kind of culture where we do small rent- rentals and small wooden stick buildings and uh, you know food trucks and things like that so that you can take advantage of a summer season and then pull back um, in the winter when, the, when it's storm season? Or that if you do get destroyed in the summer season, the economic impact is not nearly as great. So, I mean, I think that's part of that adaptation and creativity that we potentially bring to our coast so that we can generate economic value and that, so that we can all enjoy the coast, and, but what, that we're not overbuilding and um, 
putting all of our economic eggs into this one place that's highly vulnerable. Shannon, I'm going to, I know that's probably just the first thing, but I just want to draw a connection. You know, we, uh, we've got our, uh, recreational economist host Dan Martin of Next Gen Waterfronts. And uh, he's had on, I think it was Greg Corey, if I'm not mistaken, uh, out of uh, California. And they were talking about kind of the future economic incentives, uh, development incentives along the American shoreline. And one of the things that they talked about is exactly what you're saying, which is that we are becoming more comfortable living in and around the risk of being near water. And uh, we anticipate, in fact, they went even as far as to say that there might be development in the water, on the water, floating, floating possibilities and uh, just things like that, that, you know, are definitely not the uh, current in the current realm of (laughs) what's going on. But uh, as we grow more comfortable and perhaps the conditions on the ground change and, uh, Boy, that would be an interesting, that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And I mean, I think you have to look at, you know, all the engineering aspects of those kinds of solutions. You know, do they really withstand a force five, you know, uh, hurricane? Do they, uh, how are you managing sewage uh, and all these kinds of things? But um, it's, it's certainly within the realm. You know, Shannon, I know it, it shouldn't be controversial to say that, uh, rethinking coastal development or risk areas of, of risk uh, that you can't armor your way out of the problem. It seems common sense to me. And that rethinking the development pattern itself is a worthy topic of discussion. Uh, in the local community political environment, that is tough to do. But, you know, can we go with the good old common sense? Maybe we shouldn't build as much stuff in the highest risk areas an alternative to that, I like this description you used of a pop-up, uh, you know, pop-up development that's sort of mobile and there. Uh, I hate to think that that would be considered an outrageous or controversial thing to, to say because it does make sense. Well, and I think one of the challenges we have is there is so much coastal and riparian development already that we have to work our way out of that problem. So there will be some areas where that development, because it's a, you know, it's a port, it's a oil and gas refinery or something that, you know, has been there and, you know, moving it is highly problematic. It's going to be protected up the hill and it, and it probably needs multiple redundant levels of protection, one of which should be natural infrastructure. Um, but in other areas, we got to think better about how do we gradually shift uh, people away, you know, and, and then I think we have a real challenge in this nation with the private uh, property rights question. Um, there isn't enough money to buy out everyone who's in a high hazard area. So how are we going to do this? You know, is there is how do we encourage uh, people to move out of those areas? And then how do you make sure that these areas don't fall into disrepair or are you know, moved into because they've low, lowered value of the house uh, because of the high risk and the high insurance rates? So do the most vo- economically vulnerable people end up moving in and then, they ha- and then that house gets walloped? I mean, there are some really big social questions that have to be worked through on this front. Huge. 
Uh, I'm going to make a plug here for uh, Bob Frump's podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. It's called Ship to Shore, uh, Shannon, but he interviewed a Pulitzer Prize winning author uh, and journalist. His name was Gil Gall. And his book is coming out in September. It's called The Geography of Risk. It sounds like it would be right up your alley. Uh, but for those who want to deeper dive into this question of, well, it, it's a, really an interesting voice, I think, on on the connection between planning and risk and why we keep doing the same things over and over. And I want to interject this one story uh, because it, it struck me Uh, uh Gil used is from Jersey. When he said when he was a kid, they would go. He would him and his friends would go down in the summer and rent a three or four hundred square foot cinder block house with no air conditioning and surf all summer and work as lifeguards. And it was cheap and it was easy and it was it was low cost. And he said those things were were dirt cheap for us to do as teenagers. We could do it. He said now I go down there and there's a million and a half dollar house and that that sort of lighter touch it's such a hard thing to again how do we get because of the economics of these the this the shoreline is just kind of crazy well we all love the ocean and we all love the views of the water well let me i think one point that you made i want to i want to kind of capture and and maybe explore a little bit you were talking about what I think is one of the big distinctions in this discussion that has to be kept in mind, and that is the urbanized shoreline versus the less developed. Uh, We are all over the shoreline. Uh, The city of Houston and the Corps of Engineers are working hard on a plan to protect the petrochemical complexes there. The the programming is about, they think, about $32 billion. There are places where, where maybe natural resiliency systems are not necessarily going to be sufficient when you're in the dialogue of this professionally with other folks and going to the conferences and talking to the people that you do, um, is this distinction, how does this sound in your community? Uh, the urban shorelines versus, can we say more rural or barrier island or residential areas? Is there a difference in how the techniques that you're promoting apply or can they go, does it go in both places? It can go in both places. Um, you can have oyster reefs. In fact, that was proposed as part of New York City's, you know, strategy at, at one point. And you can have, um, uh, you know, wetlands and whatnot that are in front of seawalls or bulkheads and things like that that provide extra uh, buffers, basically, uh, that slow the water down and potentially even stop it before it hits the wall. Uh, depending on the size of the storm. Um, It's really the system that you're working in that drives what kind of natural infrastructure is going to work uh, and what combination of natural infrastructure. Is it only natural infrastructure? Is it natural infrastructure and hard solutions or even hybrid solutions where they're integrated like a seawall inside of a dune? Um, so it really depends on, you know, what the system is, uh, the, and the economics, uh, everything. So there's no reason to rule out, uh, natural infrastructure solutions, even in urban environments. And I think I agree with you that two things come to mind. Number one, de Blasio's plan for lower Manhattan, $10.5 billion is includes an extension of the island seaward into, I think he's looking at, uh, a wetland plateau, essentially, 
off of Lower Manhattan. Uh, I wondered if you had thoughts on that. And we heard the same strategy from the director of the Port of San Francisco when we interviewed her. Uh, a seawall that they need to restore, but a plan for an extensive marsh seaward of that. Are um, Have you looked at de Blasio's plan? Do you have any thoughts on what he's, he's uh, thrown out there so far? Yeah, I, I looked at de Blasio's plan um, in so much as I saw that it was this, you know, area of fill um, that they would put off the lower end of Manhattan, as I recall correctly. And, um, you know, I think... Well, it'll be interesting to see. I'd love to see the modeling on that to understand um, to what extent it'll work. We have to think about what impacts that has on local, both, you know, how do the currents move uh, around that? How will it be maintained? You know, is there enough sediment supply? Uh, you know, is that a sustainable approach? But so let's say the engineering says it is. That would be very exciting. Um, and I assume that they'd have some way to protect it so that it wasn't going to be um, encroached upon slowly by buildings. Um, and, you know, perhaps they're going to in- integrate, you know, reefs off, I mean, uh, oyster reefs offshore or something to help um, mitigate some of the wave energy. So, you know, natural infrastructure is as sophisticated in its needs for, you know, good engineering as a structural measure. Uh, you know, so that's why it's always about what are the details. Um, San Francisco, you were asking earlier about uh, areas that are, you know, maybe more embracing of some of the natural infrastructure solutions. The San Francisco Bay Area is definitely one of them. Um, they've got a number of very interesting ideas that they're putting forward, including the, what they call the horizontal levy, which is a combination of a a berm or a levee uh, fronted by grasses and native plants, fronted in front of that with um, transitional salt marsh uh, and then oyster beds uh, in front of that. So that's, again, multiple layers of protection. And then the levee becomes a bike path as well. So you don't feel visually you might have a disconnect uh, from some places, but you have a way to get up there and enjoy it as a you know, creating a view shed for bicycle riders and walkers. So um, there's many, that's what's so exciting about this, is this can be really creative that um, creates these great community assets if we come up with good solutions. And, and Shannon, let's, let's just admit it. It would be a whole damn lot nicer it, it, for people. It, you know, I hate to just say, I mean, there, there's this technical engineering thing that has to happen. And I'm, and for all the engineers out there, believe me, you're still going to get to do all your work. We love you. We love you. And you'll still be doing it when you're talking about marshes and oyster reefs and all of that. But the fact of the matter is the shoreline is so much more appealing if it looks like this, as opposed to, and God bless Corps of Engineers for the Galveston Seawall because it's done a lot of stuff. But I am much, much more interested in shorelines that look and act like that and are effective. Is that one of the pitch points that you guys work with is, look, this is just better from a human standpoint, from the visual, the aesthetic, the, you know, the environmental, as you say, the recreational. It just seems like, come on, we got to move in this direction. Yes, those are parts of the pitch point. Uh, it's aesthetics. It's uh, it's also that it can you know reduce the the maintenance needs on the structural uh, components that you have. 
Uh, it's the additional benefits that you get from water quality or the attractive feature that you get more visitation to beaches that don't have these bad structures, you know, these stru- hard structures. I didn't mean to say bad. That was bad on me. Um, uh, you know, so it is. It's all, it's all of those things. And I think that's why it's getting the traction it's getting. Okay. So I am a disciple. I'm, I'm convinced this is the way to go in risk management is to really think hard about these integrated natural shoreline approaches. Shannon, now you spend some time on this topic. It all comes down to money. When you're looking at this problem, how do we pay for this stuff? Is there anything interesting that our audience should know about in how to finance these very expensive, large-scale initiatives that you're talking about? Well, good point. So one thing is to say that many natural infrastructure solutions can be more cost-effective uh, in the long run, uh, even sometimes in the short run compared to structural solutions. Uh, and But the, the bigger question, I think, is really how do we pay? Um, so I have two points um, on a, if it's public, you can pay for it by bringing in other agencies that see those benefits. So they may have funds. So you start to blend financing from, you know, fish and wildlife organizations, you know, the local game, fish and game, or the parks and rec, the water quality agencies, not just the flood control agencies budget. And that includes federal and state potentially from the private sector. This is the nut that really needs to be cracked. You know, how do you uh, leverage uh, public-private partnerships or increase involvement in the private sector? So one thing that environmental defense did last year was explored whether a new concept called an environmental impact bond might be used in uh, or feasible in Louisiana to help pay for wetland restoration. And we issued a report that said it looked like it was feasible. Um, we think it would be attractive to the private market, uh, you know, the, the kind of folks that would go for muni bonds. Uh, we think it might also be constructed to encourage the financial involvement of some of the local beneficiaries of the flood risk reduction. So that's an exciting idea that is sort of on the table for the state to um, consider. Uh, the similar idea has been used for urban flooding, for uh, stormwater management uh, in Atlanta and in Washington, D.C. Uh, yeah, okay. I need to go to school here uh, I, because I really, I, I've read about these. I've read some of your articles, which are fantastic on the t- subject of in, environmental impact bonds. I Help me out here because I know if it's a sewer bond. I know that there's going to be an infrastructure cost. They're going to uh, spend, I don't know, let's say a, a billion, a million dollars. And I know that the revenues that are going to pay that are going to come from a sewer assessment on people's bill and there's a revenue stream. I haven't quite got my head around how an environmental impact bond uh, would be repaid. What is the source of the revenue? Can you walk our audience through this? I know it makes sense, but I, I would really appreciate it. Can you go kind of step by step and tell us, how this financially functions? Well, it depends on the bond. So every deal is a little unique. So the green bonds that uh, Washington, and I'm less familiar with the Atlanta one, but they just announced it uh, a couple months ago. You know, they have revenue, just like you were describing, uh, from their stormwater management districts. So that's why it's just like a normal muni bond. In the case of Louisiana, uh, what we were looking at 
was could we um, have, could could the state use uh, uh, they have several different sources of funding for their wetland restoration work under the coastal master plan. So there's oil and gas revenue, uh, both state and federal. That and there is also the possibility of tapping into uh, the different Restore Act pots of money that exist from the Deepwater Horizon spill. So um, there are sources, um, and so you're and you're basically just it's just like a muni bond. You're paying for. Uh, a product is just that you're getting the product sooner and faster, faster. Um, and there, I didn't mention that there's a performance-based aspect to this. So you actually know what you're getting and you have a confirmation that you're getting that product. So it makes people more willing to, you know, stomach a, um, a fee increase, for example, if they know that the result is going to be that the product, the product is going to work. Okay. And I've read that. And I think that made sense to me on this performance-based measure. So if we were to restore an oyster reef system with a wetland in front of it, you get into this esoteric area of valuing environmental services, but there is a value and there's a storm reduction value to those natural systems. That is a provable known thing. Exactly. Uh, and it ties into people's insurance risk premiums. I mean, there is a, uh, there is, and these have been done. So we're not talking about theory here, but uh, it's this, it's this environmental services valuation and the cost of, yeah, I get stuck right here. Right. So you could model uh, the flood risk reduction benefits of putting a wetland, let's say in front of lower Manhattan, right? You could, so you could then say, well, this is its predictive performance. Now, is it performing? Or what is its average performance? So you could do something like that. Now, in Louisiana, we said the problem with that approach is it's hard to prove that it's going to work or that it has worked unless you have a big old storm, right? Uh, and that could be longer than the performance period. Like it might not be that happening in, in that five or 10 year performance period. So what we looked at is, well, could we just um, say, could we just talk to the, did the design of it meet the requirements that we are seeking? You know, is it, is it elevated to this amount? Uh, do we have the kinds of density, the kinds of density of vegetation that we want so that it will, we expect that it will meet the modeling criteria? So we, we sort of um, finesse that, I guess I would say. Um, the other financial sort of um, link here that needs to be cracked is, you mentioned it yourself, insurance. So if there is, if there is a way to bring in the insurance industry such that they uh, are motivated to um, reward communities that lower risk, and that's an idea that's been bandied about insurance groups have been like, well, you know, they're all about profit, right? You know, so they're, or product, you know, what can they sell? So they haven't really yet been convinced, but there are a couple of interesting, you know, um, glimmers of hope. I mean, there's a Mesoamerica reef uh, insurance product that uh, TNC uh, worked on with the insurance industry. And there are other folks working on the concept of a resilience bond. All of that uh, to be determined. You know that makes sense to me, and 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 I think for folks out there, 
when you think about what how an insurance company looks at your house, they're going to ask you, do you have a fire uh, detection system? And if you do, uh, they're going to drop your premium a little bit. And they're doing that because it is understood and believed that if you have this in place, the financial risk to the insurer is lower. And I could see that with oyster reefs and wetlands and those kinds of uh, risk reduction strategies that if these things are in place, the chances that the property insurers out there are going to write bigger checks goes down. And they should be able to quantify that. That's what these damn people do all the time is they, they're actuaries. They look at these kind of problems. They can quantify that. That seems legitimate to me. Uh, can, I, can I play devil's advocate, though, really quick? Yeah. Uh, not devil's advocate, but I have a follow-on question. Like, It makes sense that you can quantify and account for the storm risk reduction. Right. But um, how are we accounting for the – if you really want storm risk reduction – one could argue, armor the hell out of it and build the big concrete thing. So how are we, hmm. this is a green infrastructure con, uh, concept. So how are we valuing the the green infrastructure, well, like the oyster reef? Is that being taken into account as well? Okay, okay Shannon, that's a good question. Uh, so, yeah. So in the situation in um, Washington, D.C., where the, the, there were choices of building another uh water collection tunnel under the city that was going to cost, uh, you know, bazillions. I don't know what the actual number was. Um, but if they did natural infrastructure, you know, some wetlands to absorb water and strategic locations across the city, uh, they could avoid the costs of building this huge new gray infrastructure. So that's how it came in there. In the case of Louisiana, we were really looking at areas that are already slated for wetland restoration um, as opposed to levees. And so the idea was, well, if we're restoring these wetlands, do they provide some incremental benefits to um, businesses or homes uh, on the coast? The answer is, yeah, some of them do. That makes sense. And Shannon, don't we already do this a little bit in the National Flood Insurance uh program in in the community rating system in communities that have sustained shoreline restoration programs or beach renourishment programs with good dunes if that's done for a period of years it gets factored into the it doesn't it get factored in ultimately if it's done right and it meets all the standards into a reduction in the premium cost for homeowners is that am i wrong about that or no, I think I think that's right. Um, and then CRS also accounts for creation and protection of open space, which is basically natural infrastructure. So not every community actually recognizes this and counts mm. these uh, points, gets these points, or asks for them. And uh, the American uh, uh, Floodplain Managers Association, sorry, the Association of State Floodplain Managers, I got that all screwed up. Uh, they were working with a, a number of um, uh, colleagues and NGOs uh, to help uh, come up with a green guide to CRS in order to help encourage communities to grab those points where they can. I think um, CRS could be, community rating system, 
could be adapted to further recognize other natural infrastructure and other benefits. You know, even on-farm soil management could be a benefit because it could reduce flooding risks, for example. That's a subtlety that is not yet captured under CRS, to my knowledge. Well, it's, it, you know, I can see why uh, this would be a very interesting position that you're in professionally, because that the, it, this is a very innovative, probably the most complex and innovative discussion that I know about on the American shoreline is the integration of this, you know, natural infrastructure for, for extreme weather and risk reduction, the politics of it, the economics of it, the insurance of it, the financing. I mean, this is sort of where the rubber re- meets the road. And uh, to be honest, I find it's, it's kind of a bit overwhelming when you dive into the details here, how to, you know, man, what a, what a great job, Shannon. <laughs> Not dull <laughs> at all. No, there's never a dull moment in my job. That's absolutely true. Um, but the best reward is when you, you know, you climb up on some beach and you see a healthy dune and a broad beach and you see people out there playing, you know, and you sort of say, yeah, this is the way it can be. You know, when you walk along a river and you see a broad, wide floodplain and, you know, people fishing there and picnicking uh, or people doing bird watching. Yeah, this is the way a floodplain should function and it should be allowed to flood periodically and do what rivers do. And we just sort of need to acknowledge that and start making room for those rivers. And we need to start adapting to higher seas and and more water. So, uh, Shannon, I, we have a few minutes left, so I, I, I want to return to this idea of uh, kind of what you were just talking about, this kind of view to the future. Uh, clearly, uh, we are getting better at understanding that natural infrastructure, green infrastructure has uh, risk mitigation benefits and then benefits beyond that, whether it's a nice view or whether it's a healthy ecosystem so we have healthier air, or maybe it even mitigates uh, climate change by you know sequestering carbon dioxide. So there's clearly benefits here. And I'm, I'm wondering, as this pendulum, I'm going to swing back to this, uh, this concept before of uh, the pendulum seems to be swinging. It seems that we are moving out of this kind of industrialized, concrete gray infrastructure it's called a view of the world that we are masters of the domain and we tell the water where to go to this place where actually uh we need to like live with coexist in a more um i don't know uh uh, we're we're both both the friendly yeah friendly friendly way (laughs) yeah uh, uh, more respectful to uh natural processes and letting uh letting nature and the planet kind of show us the way a little bit. And I'm wondering if if you see that pendulum, how far the other direction do you see that pendulum swinging? Are we going to move to a place? It's hard for me to imagine a situation where New York City uh, retreats. You know, I, I, I will, oh, I can only, only, I can only envision a situation where there's a, uh, a big concrete structure, maybe buried underneath green infrastructure, but it's still there, you know, I, and I'm wondering, is there a future where we, that gray infrastructure actually goes away? Does the pendulum swing all the way, uh, the other direction? I don't think so. I think, uh, the engineered structures have a place. Um, they work. Uh, we have considerable infrastructure in some areas that we want to protect and uh, yeah, 
I think you're right. I don't see, I can see parts of New York City um, moving back, but as a whole, you know, New York is not going to disappear. Um, I think that the future, I mean, it's, I just think that the, the problems are big enough, the engineering challenges are there, whether it's uh, structural, uh, natural infrastructure approaches, you know, we need a balance. Uh, you need to have both. Uh, and there are places where you might have just one. Yeah. Let, let me just uh, clarify this too, because I think that there's an important distinction. And also just when we think about this, you know, we inherit, you know, New York City's situation is an inherited deal. Same with Houston, Galveston, just basically every, every place that exists right now. Um, but as decisions, you were talking earlier about uh, sprawl and new development. Of course, the our population continues to climb. There will be new houses built. There will be new communities developed and planned. Um, and they are being developed and planned right now. There are probably hundreds, if not thousands of communities that are being planned in the United States, many of them on the American shoreline as we speak. And for those communities, those these new developments, um, I wonder how I wonder if this uh, this integration of the value of working with the planet, if you will, is is being embraced. You know, that's kind of my question. Yeah. So I think that's very dependent on the developer themselves and what their vision is and what local communities uh, ask and demand of local developments. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity a marketing opportunity in the part of local developers in, you know, showing that they build above code, for example, uh, that they're building you know, more than the minimum and that they are in a safe location or, you know, a, not a high hazard location. No area is completely safe from a natural hazard, but, you know, I, I think that that can be part of it and showing, you know, there are developments all around the country where um, the developer has integrated nature and natural areas and protected set asides, you know, that will not be developed and will not have even, you know, paths through it so that nature can exist without um, interruption, so to speak. So that's there. Uh, and the question is, is it marketed and championed uh, and attractive enough um, to people uh, to move there? And do they pay a premium for that? Or, or is there enough benefit that, you know, it actually costs them less because they have good transportation systems and they have lower flood insurance or, you know, don't need to have flood insurance with their mortgage. Um, yeah, so I think I think there is a future with that, uh, and I think we need places that are attractive so that people will say, you know what, I want to move away from this high hazard area. I want to go, you know, to place X. Well, there is a lot of learning, uh, Shannon. I think to come, uh, it's so great to see the conversation reaching the level that you're involved in and EDF is involved in. Uh, I like to say reality is a relentless teacher. It's going to keep teaching us what we're doing wrong because <laughs> it, it, it'll, it'll come up and bite you. And I do think that's a driving force in, 
the work that you do is that these disasters are going to ultimately, if we if we keep making the same mistakes, are going to become unaffordable, and people are going to start looking for these, uh, as you suggest, places that are less risky and better managed, and that kind of thing. Maybe that is what drives us ultimately: is we can't write the checks to be as stupid as we have been. If I can be flat, <laughs> be flat honest. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on this amazingly interesting topic that you're involved in? Well, I think that, you know, what, what you were just saying is we also need to do a far better job, and it's very hard, of what we're doing right. Because the, the problem is when you're doing something right, you don't have a disaster. And, you, and, and it's very hard to collect the information and say, look, this is why they didn't have this disaster. We have to do better with our storytelling in those areas. And I actually appreciate the chance that you've given me to share some of these these stories because it's very promising. It's very exciting um, you know, to look at the future. And I just want to be optimistic that there is a way that we find to cope better with this, uh, you know, that keeps the things that we all value about our, our country and our lives and our quality of life. Absolutely. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Shannon Kniff, Director of Coastal Resiliency for the Environmental Defense Fund in Washington, D.C. Shannon, thank you so much for being on the American Shoreline podcast. If people want to learn more about your work, uh, where do they go and how do they get in touch with you? Well, um, they should go to the Environmental Defense Fund um, website where we have an experts page. Uh, They can Google me, Shannon Kniff. Um, I'm all over the place, as you you mentioned, and I'm certainly happy to to talk to folks and and kibitz. (laughs) Well, thank you, Shannon. And uh, we would love to have you back on as the work that you are pursuing uh, advances. Uh, Keep us up to date. on the best developments on natural infrastructure. Um, It's a problem that's not going to go away. So the best thinkers in the country have to be on this one. And I think you're one of them. So thank you very much for the time today. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure.